Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 21 through 30. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that this day it might be living and active, piercing through bone and marrow, soul and spirit. We pray that you might give life. We pray that you might put to death that which is sinful and harmful and which leads us away from you and from one another. We pray that you might instill ever more deeply within us that which is true and good and beautiful, that which comports with the vision and goal you set for us in creation and to which you bring us through the work of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray now that Jesus would be our teacher, asking that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Superficial signals can be quite dangerous. I'm reminded of an August evening over a quarter century ago when my best friend's father acted on the basis of what proved to be a superficial signal. The storm uh, had been coming for several days and they knew it would be bad. And they lived in the end of a small cul-de-sac in South Miami. And it proved that all of the forecasts were true and then some. Because Hurricane Andrew pounded the shore for hours upon hours. And it was brutal. And they had prepared well and stocked up and boarded the house. And had tended to the neighbors, especially the elderly widow who lived just across the street by herself who refused to leave her home, but insisted on guarding it and watching over it. And so they wondered. Telephones went out. Sure enough, radio went out. They wondered when the storm would end and how she would be. And eventually, the winds died down. 
Now, the radio had been out for some time, so they didn't know what was going on. But it seemed as though it was peaceful and clear. And so my friend's father unlocked the doors and unbolted them and raced across the cul-de-sac to go check on their dear friend. But before he made it, you heard the sound pick up again. And he wound up spending the better part of the storm hanging on to a banyan tree for dear life. As he learned that the storm had not passed, but he had ventured out in the middle of the eye of the hurricane. And his wife and my friend had to lock him out and bolt the door for fear of his and their lives. Superficial signals can be terribly misleading. Now, I have good news. He made it and is alive to tell the story this day. But Jesus addresses throughout his ministry people who live on the basis of superficial signals who don't fare so well. And in this passage, he speaks to the absolutely catastrophic results of those who are satisfied with superficial signals of safety. In this Sermon on the Mount, he has already taken up and identified the danger of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, people who he will address at numerous times, as is recorded in the Gospel according to Matthew. You'll well know elsewhere that he refers to them as vipers, as whitewashed tombs, as those who lay heavy burdens on the backs of people. It's crucial to note, though, what he is, in fact, charging them with here in Matthew 5. He has just attested in the preceding verses that he has not come to overthrow or to abolish the law, the law that the scribes and Pharisees claim to care for so very much. No, he has come to fulfill it. And he has come further as a rabbi and a teacher to commend that the law instructs and calls for a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, Jesus will charge them with many things on other occasions. Here, he charges them with narrowing and reducing the call of the law in their lives. And we see throughout Matthew 5, beginning here in verse 21 and running all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 48, that Jesus is seeking to call his followers and disciples, the very people of God, to a whole vision of what God has for us. It's very easy to take superficially narrow notions of what God has for you and to pursue them with ardor and zeal and vigor and perhaps with a snide scowl at those who don't do it so well. But in a number of contrasts, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is calling his people away from these kind of easy narrowings, and he's calling them to a wider vision of what holiness looks like, a wider vision of what transformation God would have for you and for me. Eventually he'll say, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, sometimes we get in our heads that Jesus is there suggesting what we could call the impossible ideal, sinless perfection, as if the sermon is about making you feel bad for what you can't muster so that you can sort of in in a head-drooping sort of way turn to God asking for forgiveness. 
Now, I have bad news for you this morning. You can't muster that, and you do need to droop your head and bow your knees and come to God for forgiveness and to come to his table to be fed. But that's not what this text is about. When Jesus speaks of this perfection, he's not speaking of sinless, flawless performance. He's speaking of wholeness, completeness. He's suggesting that you don't behave one way to your friends and to the insider and another way to those on the outside, to those who are of another sort. He's saying you don't behave one way with the words of your mouth and another way stewing within in your very heart. He's calling us to completeness, to wholeness, to maturity. He has no notion that we will somehow be sinlessly perfect in this life, even the Christians in the town. No, in in the very next chapter, he's going to teach us that every day we must pray that God would forgive us our debts, even as we must be about the business of forgiving one another's debts. So baked into the very plot and plan of maturity here is this ongoing repentance and confession of sin. But this plan does envision a wholeness, a completeness, that the same God who has captured our hearts, longs to capture every fiber of our being. The same God who has assumed our frail form and taken it to the cross to redeem us from the guilt of our sins, He longs not only to transform our bodies into their resurrected glory, but to transform every nook and cranny of your person that you might bear the image of the man of heaven. And so it's crucial to see in Matthew 5 that Jesus is calling us to see the breadth of the gospel's change, to see the width of God's vision for us, to see the depth to which grace will bring us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in this section of the chapter, we see two issues addressed, anger and lust. And I want to look with you briefly to see a few things about how Jesus addresses anger and lust here in this call to great concern. But before we do so, it's worth observing just two things very briefly. First of all, we need to see that Jesus is not about the task of facile false equivalence. If you look at verses 21 and 22, you read, You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then in similar form, in verses 27 and 28, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not here suggesting that harboring ill will towards someone in your heart is as bad or as problematic as murdering someone. Nor is Jesus suggesting that lusting in your heart is as bad as going and sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. He is not going about the task of saying that these are equivalent in every respect. He is speaking to the fact that God cares about all of our lives. It is worse to kill, and it is worse to go commit adultery, 
But it is not okay to stew within or to lust after that which is not ours. This is speaking to the breadth and the length of God's concern, not to some sort of false equivalence. It's crucial to catch that. And this is not new. This is not Jesus correcting the Old Testament. You'll remember the Old Testament law was summed up in Deuteronomy 6, where just after the Ten Commandments have been read in chapter 5, God has Moses say to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament passages by Jesus himself. And he will mix it up and and diversify it, speaking of how on various occasions we're to offer in love unto God our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. It's his way of summing up the the, the call of the law. And it's crucial to see that that text is suggesting that because God is one and because God saves you in every area of your life, because God is a all-services provider, all-inclusive. You don't have to buy this here and that there, but you go to God for everything. Therefore, you offer God everything in love. You don't somehow offer God your hands, but keep your lips to yourself. You don't offer God your actions, but you keep your heart as your own. No, God wants to change every fiber of your being. A hundred years ago, the famous Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper came to this land, and as he was lecturing in Princeton, he offered what's become an incredibly famous saying that There is not one square inch of this entire cosmos over which Jesus Christ doesn't say, mine. That Christ is Lord of all. And that's true, but it's crucial to see that's not just a cosmic statement. That's a personal statement. There is not one nook and cranny of you over which Jesus does not say, mine. He did not come simply to save your eternity, Your heart, your mind, your lips, or your hands, he came to save all of you. And Jesus here suggests we need to understand that wholeness and that completeness, that global concern of every nook and cranny of our being. So how do we come, as men and women who struggle with this and who Jesus acknowledges will be tempted and tried in this way, how do we come by grace to lead lives that are light, lives that are salt, as Jesus calls us. I think there are three things we can see here very briefly. First, we ought to notice, and we shouldn't overlook, the the prompts and the pangs of conscience that are gifts of God. Notice verses 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. If you walk out during my sermon for this reason, I will not be offended. It's okay. If, if in experiencing Christian worship, you realize something in your life is out of step with the beauty of the gospel being portrayed there, you need to go make that right. You don't come participate as if things are all well and good. And so that's why when we address who should and should not come to the table, one thing you'll note is that issues of personal reconciliation are crucial here. 
And isn't that one of the great gifts of God, that as we come to worship, as we gather together, as we rehearse the story of creation, fall, and redemption week by week as we go through our order of service together and as we hear from God and and sing unto Him together, so often you start to have perceptive insights that God brings to mind. So often God uses that instance of corporate worship to help illumine what has been going on in your daily life, but you've not had eyes to see. We've been fish swimming in the water, and suddenly as we gather together, we are we are given an insight into what must change. And that's not a small thing. That is not a small thing. It's not pleasant when you feel your finger burning, but that's a really good reminder that you ought to move your hand out of the fire. Pain in that regard, discomfort in that regard, is meant to prop change so that you can flourish. It's meant to lead you to action. And that's a way in which God helps prompt repentance. We see a second way in which he's going to prompt repentance here in verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Notice that word quickly. Before you've gotten to court, before you've faced the terrible results, before the penalty of sin has hit with all its brutality, you can be warned of what's coming. You can be made aware of the danger that's looming, and we are supposed to be sensitive to that. That's why the most difficult people to engage with are those whose consciences are seared whose attention cannot be pricked. That's why our conscience and our sense of the eventual result of our patterns of behavior are a God-given gift. You know, of course, when you go for your annual checkup and the doctor starts to look askance at you after reading test results, he starts to talk to you of your blood test, he starts to talk to you about your heart, starts to ask you about your parents and other family members and and, and what the history in your family is regarding heart issues, you start to pay attention very quickly. And you don't wait until you're in the emergency room to look at changing diet and exercise, medication and care. You know to think ahead. You know to plan ahead. And Jesus here is saying, you need to be aware of moral danger. You need to be aware of relational danger. You need to act before you're taken to court so that you can stem off the painful, hurtful, harmful results of our sin. So the first thing to note is don't discount the power of God's gift in making us aware of where we are off and of where we must repent. He prompts us through worship and he pricks our conscience, and that is a gift. Secondly, notice Jesus speaks to what we could call protocols of prudence. These don't get at the deepest level in our hearts of where sin comes from, but these are crucial in our lives. You see in verses 29 and 30, he offers this repeated statement. First, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Secondly, in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. And each time he offers this statement, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, going without a member is not a pleasant thing. That is a loss of a good blessing. Jesus is saying it is worth paying a cost, a good cost, so that one is not led into temptation and harm. You're to acknowledge what are instruments, what are occasions whereby I am falling into besetting sin. And you are to make prudential judgments about what protocols you should take so as not to put yourself in those situations. This is not talking about avoiding doing evil things. This is talking about giving up good things so that you don't fall into evil things through them. So, for instance, many Christians need to think about giving up smartphones. Good things, resources to finding information and remaining connected, and yet for many Christians a constant source of temptation so that they can either avoid the people they're around or they can fall into internet pornography, both of which are horrific. And it's not that a phone is a bad thing, but for many, it's like an alcoholic constantly walking with a bar in their pocket. It's a constant temptation. And prudence suggests you do away with the good thing so that you can enjoy the greater thing. I don't know what it may be for you, but this passage suggests that you ought to identify those places where you fall into besetting sin. And you acknowledge them as as good occasions, good blessings, good people, but you realize that sometimes you have to say no to good things for the sake of greater things. There are certain foods that I love. I was thinking just last night, I would love a pistachio, but I enjoy not being in the hospital even more, so I will not ever eat a pistachio again for the sake of not being in the hospital. And I can still remember the delights of a pistachio. I can savor it. I can watch vicariously as my oldest son eats a whole box of them. But I know, good thing that it is, I need to say no for the sake of a greater good. I don't know what it is for you. For some, no doubt, in our culture, if you find yourself, you watch cable news, pick your channel, it doesn't matter, and you find that every day after you're watching cable news, you walk away, not just informed, but angry, you probably aren't feeding your soul in a healthy way. Now, that may mean that you may not find the easy medium of learning something. That may mean that you may not be able to participate in certain conversations with friends who've wanted to talk over that that show or that program. But if you find that constantly they are working up your fear and your anger and your bitterness toward others, you need to cut that off. You need to throw that away. You need to find some other means of remaining informed that isn't doing horrific harm to your soul and to your relationships. I don't know what it may be, but we need to observe those protocols of prudence, Jesus says, that we show our great concern. He'll speak later, of course, of finding that treasure hidden in a field and willingly giving up whatever good things we have so that we can buy that field and have that, that treasure. There's sacrifice and there's a cost and there's taking up your cross and following Christ. There's great joy, but it's never cheap grace. And Jesus commends that we discern that and that we do so together. 
But third, he suggests what is so easy to overlook because it's not explicitly named in these few verses, but it is the single most repeated thing in the entire Sermon on the Mount and perhaps in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And that is, third, that Jesus is calling for heartfelt obedience that flows from faith in our Heavenly Father. Quite literally, the most common word in the entire Sermon on the Mount is the name Father, that God is our Father. And almost everywhere that the word Father appears, it's described as our Father in Heaven or our Heavenly Father. There is great transformative power in knowing that there is a God in the heavens who is almighty and does what he pleases, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and in knowing that he has care for you like a father does for his sweet little child, that all his resources are put toward your good, that all his attention is directed to your growth and blessing. And knowing that power and knowing that care is precisely what undercuts the allure and the temptation of sin. I want to just consider one of these examples in the last three or four minutes before we move to the Lord's table. Consider the example of anger. You probably haven't murdered someone, but if you're anything like me or people that I've met on I-95 this morning, you stew with anger from time to time. And we live in a culture that is increasingly finding it quite lucrative and delightful to work people up to be more and more angry. Not just to disagree, but but, but to be ticked. Not to be different simply, but to be vociferously dismissive and angry and bitter at others. And Jesus says that is problematic. Even if you keep it inside, even if you stew, it will eat away at you and at others by extension. Well, why do we give in to outrage? Why do we act out with our words, our thoughts, our deeds in anger? You could think of the story, the, the John Grisham book that became a, a movie, his very first, A Time to Kill, where a black father in rural Mississippi finds that his young daughter, a 10-year-old, has been abused horrifically, raped and left for dead. And he reads the times, as it were, and he observes that when the two men who've done this are brought to trial, they almost assuredly will be let off the way things go. And realizing that there won't be justice, realizing that there will be no real peace, he takes matters into his own hands. And he goes vigilante. And as they enter the courthouse, he shoots them, and he winds up on trial for murder. There's something incredibly powerful about the spiritual dynamic at work in our hearts in that story. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He says, never avenge yourselves, beloved, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now notice, Paul there is calling for something rather radical, because the Christians there are a mistreated people. These are Christians in Rome. This is where the worst persecutions occur in that century. We know nothing of this kind of pain in this land. They are executed. Their heads are placed up on tent poles and lit on fire. 
so that you can find your way into the city. They are sent to jail and they are treated in horrific fashion. And he calls them not to avenge themselves. And he goes on, he says, if your enemy is thirsty, you give them water. If they're hungry, you feed them. So you don't simply avoid wiping out or or going after the person who's mistreating you, but you bless them. He's, of course, picking up on Jesus' teaching later here in Matthew 5 of turning the other cheek and of blessing the one who would curse you. Notice, he doesn't say you do that because you care less about the harm done to you. He doesn't say, I know it hurts. Or I know it feels bad, but it's not really bad. He doesn't say, I know it it seems as though you're getting hammered, but it'll work out just fine. it'll, It'll pass in a day or two. He doesn't go the stoic route of saying, don't worry, don't feel. He doesn't somehow suggest that justice and peace don't matter. He simply redirects and reorients the basis of our searching for justice and peace. He offers a promise. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. There will be vengeance, there will be justice, there will be peace. But I need not go out Wild West style, and bring it to pass on my own. I can trust that my Heavenly Father, the Lord and Creator of the universe, the Governor and Sovereign Lord of all, will bring that to pass. That's why James in James chapter 1 can say, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It will produce many things. It won't produce the justice of God. Because we're incapable of producing the justice of God. We're not made to produce the justice of God. We are but creatures. When we stew in outrage over others, we are refusing to hand over our concerns to the Lord. And our failure isn't to be hurt. Our failure isn't to admit the pain and sorrow of difficulty, it's in failing to lament that to the Lord and hand it over to his kind providence. One of the great gifts of the word of God, of course, is the profound way it teaches us how to take pain and sorrow before God. That the most common psalm, as we already confessed this morning, reading responsively from Psalm 13, my very famous favorite, is we learn how to lament. And that's why the scriptures have been the source of the most profound musical expressions of this, the blues, where we name our troubles, where we take them before God and others. Not in anger, but in love and expectancy and hope. And so God doesn't call us to pretend that it doesn't hurt or it doesn't matter. God doesn't call us to act as if we haven't been offended or wronged. But God calls us to be creatures and to be men and women of faith and to trust our Heavenly Father. And in trusting Him, God calls us away from anger and outrage and stewing bitterly over those who have harmed us, those who have wronged us, those who have disappointed us. He calls us to cast our cares upon Him, as Paul will write to the Philippians, that He might prove to be our God. And so, as we think about responding to prompts and pangs of conscience, as we think about instilling protocols of prudence and acting wisely as serpents, 
We need to remember always and everywhere that God ultimately wants obedience of faith. He ultimately wants us to live not simply as slavish servants who do his orders, but as children who bear his image. And so in Matthew 5, he's already begun saying that when you act in ways that comport with your father's character, you are sons of God. You are daughters of the Most High King. You have taken on the family way. You have been conformed to the image of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately what this is about. As we seek to do away with the outrage and the bitterness, as we seek to turn from insatiable lust, that ultimately we turn to something more than we turn away from things. That all of our turning away from unchecked desire and from unrestrained outrage is ultimately based in turning ourselves over to our Heavenly Father who has sent His Son on our behalf and who this day, as we are reminded by His table, longs not simply not simply to provide for us in his kingdom to come, but to meet your needs this day. Not simply to be the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, but also to provide your daily bread and sustenance. Not simply to be the one in whom you find rest eventually, but the one even now on this wilderness journey whom you can turn to this day for Sabbath rest. So let's pray and ask that he would instill that faith ever more deeply in our hearts. Father, we are yours. You've made us. And you have made us with desire and longing, with passion and affection. You have made us to desire peace and wholeness, harmony with others and with you. And we confess that so often our hearts are troubled. And Lord, we have had more than enough of disappointment without and within. We've had more than enough of difficulty and struggle. We have had more than enough of the despair and hopelessness. And we confess that to you, asking that you would instill in our hearts hope that cannot be shaken and will not waver, hope that is based on your word, hope that is prompted by your reign on your throne from which you sent forth your Son to be our Redeemer and sacrifice. And so as we come readying our hearts to receive from your table... We pray that you would deepen in each of us that great resolve that we would be Christ's, that we would receive all that he is for us, that we would open wide our mouths, that we might taste the goodness of the Lord, that you would deepen in us that faith which looks to you, that you might deepen in us that hope which walks forward in boldness and courage, that you might deepen in each of us that love that turns over every area of our lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength unto you and pours ourselves out for our neighbor. Would you do that by your Spirit's power, we pray. Amen.